Hi, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I am glad to be here today. I want to also welcome the West Campus. I have some great friends out at the West Campus. I love being with them, too. We're glad you're all joining us today so we can be in the scriptures together. It is a great, great day for that. Come Thou Fount is actually one of my favorite hymns. The words to it were written over 250 years ago. Verse three is at the top of your outline this morning. But even though these words are 250 years old, they still speak to my heart because they nail one of the heart struggles that all Christians are gonna deal with throughout their Christian journey. Uh, Verse three says, um, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know, I think all of us can probably sing those words with sincerity and honesty because even though we love the Lord our God, we are prone to wonder. We are distracted and enticed by the things that come into our lives. We're blinded by circumstances and overwhelmed by circumstances sometimes. And before we know it, we have wandered away from the God that we love. And we're off out there in the high weeds of people, places, things, circumstances, just the busyness of life. Our friend Jacob in our story today is having just such a struggle. He's headed back home. He's headed back to the God that he loves, to the place that God has called him to. And if you were here with our, us last week for our lesson with Lynn, you know that um, he started his journey and he's going where God has asked him to go. But along the way, before he gets there, he has a face-to-face wrestling match with God. And in the end, Jacob discovers that holding tightly to God during that wrestling match is really the answer, and it changes his life. He's had an independent heart, and this wrestling match with God where he finally grabs hold of him and holds him tight changes his heart to a dependent heart. But as Jacob heads back to Cana right here in these chapters beginning in chapter 33. His journey back really becomes a test of his wholehearted commitment to God after that wrestling match. And we're going to see that Jacob is just like all of us and he has a heart that is on occasion prone to wonder and prone to leave the God he loves. The great news for Jacob and for all of us this morning and throughout the ages is that when we find our wholehearted commitment to God tested by things that come into our life, God never wonders from us. We're the wanderers, not our God. He's always there. He's always waiting. He's always welcoming us when our hearts return to him. Look at Jeremiah 29, 13 on your verse sheet. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with a whole heart. And Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God and they shall return to me 
with a whole heart. Our God waits patiently for us no matter how often or how far we wander from him. And Jacob's return home this morning is not just about the physical trip that he is delighted to make back to his homeland and leave Laban. It's really about the journey that his heart needs to make back to his God. So read with me in chapter 33, if you will, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Rachel and Leah and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near. They and their children bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I've met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, even though Jacob has just finished his wrestling match with God before this encounter with Esau, and he's discovered his dependence on God as, as he looks up and sees Esau and his men bearing down on them, unfortunately, he goes right back to his fear, and he sets to work trying to set up a human shield instead of depending on God's protection here for Rachel and her beloved uh, and her son, Joseph. But we do see some evidence that Jacob's heart has changed here after his wrestling match because Jacob does have the courage to step out in front of all the wives and the children and meet Esau face to face. And we see that he humbles himself and he bows down before Esau here. Now, if Esau's heart has not changed, this would be the perfect opportunity for Esau to do Jacob in as he comes out front, bows down seven times to meet him. Now, the most exciting thing to me uh, when I read through this story is not only how Jacob has changed, because there is some evidence that Jacob's heart has really uh, been moved by God. The last encounter he had with Esau, he was scamming Esau and trying to get his blessing and his birthright, which he encountered. This time, he's bowing humbly to Esau. But the most exciting thing to me is how Esau's heart has changed here. Our last picture of Esau was with him vowing to murder Jacob. Look on your verse sheet, Genesis 27, 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with, with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's 20 years later. 20 years later, they haven't had any contact with each other. Esau runs to Jacob, and he kisses him, and both 
brothers weep. Now this reunion looks dramatically different from the one that Esau threatened 20 years earlier. And it looks dramatically different from the one I think that Jacob had been so fearful of as he uh, returned to Cana and knew that Esau would be part of that journey back. Jacob realizes here, we see it in verse 10, that it is God that has brought a miracle about in changing their relationship because he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. He's so shocked and surprised at how Esau greets him that he knows the only way that could have happened is by a miracle. And he's really looking at God's miracle when he looks upon Esau's face. This story of Jacob and Esau and this miraculous uh, reuniting of these two brothers who had left each other bitter and angry and filled with hatred um, is a great work of God here. It's only a few verses and 50 chapters of Genesis, but I don't want you to miss it because God changes these selfish, greedy, um, angry men, angry brothers. He changes their hearts into hearts that value each other and are excited to see each other and have what appears to be genuine affection for each other. And Jacob has become a spiritual guy because he sees uh, the face of God when he looks at Esau here. You know, my big regret when I read this story was that Rebecca was not alive to see this. You know, the person that's wounded the most when siblings um, have strife and refuse to uh, talk to each other, um, who is it? It's mom, isn't it? It's mom's the one that is really wounded the most. And I'm sure that the person that would have rejoiced and wept the most at this reunion between these two brothers would have been Rebecca. This story is a great reminder for all of us today. Um, if I had a show of hands in here of, of how many of us had had families that had had strife and disagreements and, and even estrangements, I think most of us would probably raise our hands today. These verses about Jacob and Esau are great encouragement to us, I think, because we have a tendency to depend on people to change their own hearts and what we see here is that it's God that changes people's hearts. God can change anyone's heart, anytime, anywhere. I don't believe that Esau was a particularly spiritual guy that had spent the last 20 years um, uh, searching and seeking for God to change his heart. I think God changed his heart because it was part of God's big plan. And so God did that um, just as a gracious reminder to these two brothers who he is. But unfortunately, as much as Jacob has learned about dependence on God and his wrestling match with God, we um, can see his heart wander a little bit here, even though he greets Esau with humility and love and kindness. Because as the story goes on, we see Jacob is still okay with deceiving Esau right here in these verses. As Esau goes to leave and return home to Edom, he thinks Jacob and his family are going to be returning with him, uh, but Jacob does not tell him otherwise. Jacob has plenty of opportunity here to tell him um, that God is sending him to the land of Cana, and what we see about Esau's heart seems to 
point out that Esau would have been okay with that. He has had his heart changed towards Jacob. Let's read beginning in verse 12 and see what Jacob really does. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what, is, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth. He built himself a house, made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Cana, and on, on his way from Padan Aran, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So we see Esau heads back to Edom with full expectation that Jacob is going to travel with him and his family. And he gives him several different options to make that happen. First, he offers to go ahead of him to provide protection and direction. When that doesn't work out for Jacob, then he offers to leave some of his men to guide him and protect him on the way. But Jacob turns down that offer as well. Um, instead, uh, as Esau heads off to Edom, which is going to be northwest of where he has this encounter with Jacob. Um, Esau heads northwest and Jacob heads, I mean, south, south, I'm sorry, I've got all my directions backward. Uh, Esau heads southeast and Jacob heads northwest. Um, to his credit, and Jacob ends up in Shechem in Canaan, and Esau ends up uh, down in Edom. To his credit, when Jacob arrives in Shechem, he builds an altar just like his grandfather uh, Abraham had done when he arrived in Shechem from Padam Haran. Jacob acknowledges by building that altar that Cana. Um, he's made it to Cana by God's grace and mercy alone. And he calls that altar Elohi Israel, which means God is the God of Israel. So Jacob has come that far. So we see that Jacob has physically returned to the land that God has given him his ancestors. And he credits God with that return. But there are some inconsistencies in Jacob's behavior here, which I think should cause some concern for us and be a red flag. Inconsistencies in our life, particularly in our spiritual life from spiritual people, are always raising a red flag, and that's what we have here from Jacob. First, back in chapter 31, when he's fearful of Esau, he prays to God and asks God for protection for Esau. But the inconsistent we see, we see is that when he looks up and sees Esau coming, he is afraid and he begins to manipulate the situation so that 
Rachel and uh, Joseph have a human shield in front of him. The next inconsistency that we see in Jacob's life is first he humbles himself and greets Esau warmly and they weep and kiss and cry as if their relationship is reconciled. He gives Esau great gifts, but what he doesn't do is give him the gift of truthfulness. He doesn't trust Esau now enough to be truthful with Esau and to be honest. There's no record that Jacob ever travels to Seir. So apparently he never had any intention of going there at all. The other inconsistency that we see in Jacob is when he does arrive in Shechem, which is in the land of Cana where he was directed to return, he builds an altar there and gives God the credit for that. But what we're going to see in the next few minutes is that Shechem isn't where Jacob was supposed to go. He has not gone to the place that God was really sending him. You know, wondering hearts, hearts that are struggling to be fully and completely committed to God, that are committed to being obedient to God in every day, are every way are often outed by the inconsistencies in our life. We say one thing, we do another. We promise something and we don't quite make it right. The lesson that Jacob is still learning as we travel along with him on this journey is that having a heart that is fully committed to God means that he's got to live a life trusting and truthful. He's got to live a life that trusts in God's protection. And he's got to be truthful about how he's living that life. God is big enough. God is strong enough to protect, protect Jacob without Jacob having to manipulate and lie his way through situations. Someone shared a story with me um, a while back about an experience that they had while they were deployed in Afghanistan. And it was a pilot, and for some reason, they were transporting him across the city of Kabul, which is was dangerous at the time he was there, but they were doing it in a small, unmarked truck, and his two, his escorts were two Australian Special Forces guys, SAS guys. Um, before they started this journey across Kabul, these SAS guys said to the pilot, now, okay, if we are attacked in this small truck, the only chance we're going to have is we're going to get out and run, and you've got to stick right with us, buddy. Um, and the pilot laughed when he told the story, and he said, that wasn't a hard thing to do because these SAS guys were huge and big, and they were highly trained, and they were armed to the teeth with every possible weapon. So he knew that his best chance, if they were attacked, was to trust them completely. Where they went, he was going to be stuck to them like glue. As Jacob's heart wonders, what he fails to see here is how big and strong his God is, how um, highly capable his God is in any situation. And certainly, our God is heavily armed. Jacob would do well to trust God. Okay, let's keep on with Jacob, chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, 
he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar saying, get me this girl for a wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came and Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the fields as soon as they heard of it and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter for such a thing must not be done. Okay, so here we have another crazy story in Genesis. It's kind of one difficult story after another, and this chapter is one bad choice from start to finish. Jacob has settled in Shechem, which is among the pagans, and that means that his family are pretty closely connected to the pagans that are living around him. Um, and his teenage daughter makes a pretty foolish choice to socialize with the pagan women. And we see what a foolish choice it is because while she's out among the pagan women, one of the pagan men attacks her and kidnaps her, rapes her. Now, Jacob's response here is pretty interesting. I spent a long time looking at this and thinking about how Jacob responds. He does nothing. He does nothing when he hears what's happened to Dinah. He doesn't even express any outrage. And some of the authors that I read um, suggested that if this had been Rachel's daughter instead of Leah's daughter, he would have had a different response. And we don't have any way of knowing whether that's actually uh, true or, or not. But when her biological brothers return from the field, they have plenty of reaction for everyone. They are angry. They're uh, seek vengeance, they're grief-stricken for Dinah. Rape was a crime in the nation of Israel, a heinous crime in the nation of Israel. And I want you to notice here in verse 7 that Moses, who wrote uh, Genesis, calls them Israel for the first time as a people. Uh, right here in verse 7, this is the first place it appears, uh, is in Genesis 34, 7. Now, Hamar, the father of the rapist, comes to Jacob and his brothers, and he comes with, I'm sure, what he thinks is a great deal. He comes and offers uh, marriage. He wants to intermarry the Israelites to the Canaanites. And in verses 8 through 13, he makes it sound like this is going to be a deal that the Israelites can't refuse because the Canaanites are going to give them land and bring them prosperity. It's going to be great for them. You know, what the Canaanites don't realize is that God has already given them the land. They don't need the Canaanites to intermarry with in order to get what God has already given them. And certainly, God can provide their prosperity. We've seen it over and over and over again. So Jacob's sons take a page out of Jacob's playbook, um, beginning in verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, we can, cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for this would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give 
our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, Jacob's sons have no intention of following through here, but Hamar and his son are not very sharp. And they go back to the men of the city sitting around the city gate, and they dangle the prospect of wealth and women amongst all the men of the city, and they convince them all to be circumcised in order to seal this great deal. And of course, they've seen the nation of Israel and the prosperity that Jacob's family have. They've probably guessed where that prosperity comes from. So um, they're wanting a cut of this great deal here. So because of their greed, the guys fall for it. They're completely swindled by Jacob's sons because on day three, after they've been circumcised, Simeon and Levi slaughter all of them. And after they slaughter every single Canaanite man, then the rest of Jacob's sons come in and rob them and they take all of their possessions and they take their wives and their children also. Now, Simeon and Levi have made a good choice here to not intermarry with the Canaanites. That was a good thing that they didn't agree to that. If you'll think back to Genesis chapter 9, it was Noah that cursed Cana and his offspring. And then along the way, we've seen Abraham and Isaac um, speak out against intermarriage with the Canaanites. They sent their sons back to Haran to get wives. That was a good thing. But the bad choices of Jacob's sons are almost too many to count here in this chapter. They lie to the Canaanites, and through that lie, they make a covenant with the Canaanites, which then they turn around and break, which was serious business for the Israelites. They commit murder and robbery. They put their families in serious danger. And last but not least, they ruin God's reputation among the land that they're now trying to settle in. But the bad choices in this story are not just limited to the kids, to Dinah and Simeon and Levi and Jacob's sons. The bad choices in this story also extend to Jacob himself. He makes some bad choices here. Once again, we see that he is physically living in the land of his fathers in Cana, but his heart, which should be pursuing God with every fiber of his being, is out there wandering around somewhere, particularly right here in this chapter. He's passive when he's presented with what's happened to his teenage daughter. And that passivity may be what incited Simeon and Levi to have such violence here because their father, the patriarch of the family, does nothing and doesn't even comment. Um, we also never see Jacob go to God anywhere here in this story. We saw him go to God when he was frightened of Esau. He went and he prayed and he called upon God. We don't see that here in chapter 34. In fact, if you'll look closely, you see that the Lord is not mentioned in this entire chapter at all. Um, Jacob does not pursue God in the midst of this difficult struggle with his family and neither do his sons. And the final verses of this chapter, we see that Jacob's concern is not about Dinah. His concern is not about his sons, who are now murderers and robbers. And it's not about God's reputation. Look at verse 30 with me. 
Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall just be destroyed, both I and my household. But they, meaning Simeon and Levi, said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You know, in, in Scripture, whenever you see a word repeated, you know it's important. And the word we see repeated here over and over again from Jacob is me. Me, 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 me. Jacob's heart has wandered from his relationship with God. And as it's wandered away, it does what all of our hearts do when we wander for God. It becomes more self-centered, doesn't it? Becomes more about me and less about God and the people of God around us. It's all about Jacob here. Now, he's right to be concerned about his family. This is going to cause major issues with his family. But the reputation that stinks here, he should not be worried about his reputation stinking. He should be worried about the stink that is now on God's reputation. And we don't see Jacob express any concern, uh, any righteous anger about what his family has done to God's reputation. And it takes Simeon and Levi here to actually point out that his teenage daughter has probably had her life ruined um, because he's, she's been treated like a prostitute. You know, Jacob has been living in Shechem among the pagans now for 10 years. And his relationship with God has suffered during that 10 years. In the midst of trouble and hardship for his family... He does not step up as the spiritual leader of his family. He doesn't seek God's help and protection. And he does not lead his children to do the same thing. A wholehearted commitment to God means seeking God in every situation, big and small. We need to fall to our knees a hundred times a day when we're faced with little things and when we're faced with big things. Um, and then we need to lead others by our example. If your children grow up seeing you go to God every single time um, there's something going on in your life, they're going to have that um, built into their lives too. We don't see Jacob's children doing this here. Jacob's wandering heart has selfishly brought consequences on his whole family by his lack of spiritual leadership. Now, before we go on, I want to look backwards for just a few minutes uh, at Jacob's life. When Jacob fled from Esau 20 years ago, on the way, he stopped and spent the night. And while he was there, he had a dream. Uh, you may remember it. He had a dream where God spoke to Jacob. It was the one with the ladders and God at the top and the angels going back and forth. Um, God made promises to him there, uh, similar to the ones he'd made to Abraham and Isaac. And he also promised to go with him wherever he went and to bring him back to the land of his fathers. And in response to God's promises, Jacob was moved. He set up a stone. He uh, named the place where the stone was Bethel. And he made a vow. Look at that vow on your verse sheet. We've looked at it before, Genesis 28. 
20, and then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, 20 years later, when... Jacob has been with Laban for 20 years. He has another dream. Um, and this time in that dream, God instructs him to leave Laban and return home. And he refers to himself, God does, as the God of Bethel. Look at verse 31 on your verse sheet. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Okay, so we're up to date with Jacob now. He's in Shechem. He's been there 10 years. He's got this past history with God of having dreams, first in Bethel, and then secondly, when God calls himself the God of Bethel. So let's read in chapter 35, verse 1. And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me everywhere I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So here Jacob is, um, 30 years later from that first encounter at Bethel, and it takes God to come back to him and to prod him and be reminded of the vow that he had made to God at Bethel. Although he is back in Cana, the land that God has given to his fathers, Jacob has stopped short of fulfilling the vow that he made to God in Bethel. He has stopped short by stopping in Shechem. His 10 years in Shechem have been a procrastination. It's been a half obedience. He returned to the land of Cana, um, but he didn't return all the way to God at Bethel as God expected him to. His time in Shechem has not been filled with good things, has it? His daughter has been attacked. His sons are now murderers and robbers. His whole household has idols in their possessions. They're hated and feared by their neighbors. Later, in chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he does not bless Simeon and Levi with land because of what happens here in Shechem. They lose their inheritance. Stopping short of wholeheartedly returning to God has not been good for Jacob's family. It has not been good. And verse 2 gives us some insight as to why Jacob stopped short. Why didn't he simply do what he knew he should have done from the outcome and go to Bethel? Verse 2 tells us why. His family and his whole household were harboring idols. They were participating in idol worship. Jacob obviously was aware of that. 
Before Jacob can complete that final journey that he was supposed to make um, 10 years earlier, they have to give him all of their foreign gods, all of their idols. They're even wearing them in their ears. They're wearing gods. It's not like, oh, they were back in our chest and we didn't even know that we had them. They were out in their households and they were wearing them on their persons every single day. Jacob's lack of spiritual leadership and his wandering heart in Shechem has allowed his family to remain idol worshipers. He's allowed his family to continue down a bad road. It's only because of God's pursuit and prodding after 10 years. God's patience is immense. He's waited 10 years for Jacob to figure this out on his own and to become the spiritual leader, put away the idols and return to um, Bethel. But God steps up and reminds him where he needs to be. And along the way, um, we're not going to read this, but it tells us in the text, when Jacob finally begins on that journey to Bethel that he's procrastinated against so long, God protects him. He sends terror on the uh, people that would attack him and keep him from arriving in uh, Bethel. Once Jacob arrives, he builds his altar to God. He completes his vow to God in Bethel. Um, and look what happens. Look what happens when Jacob finally returns to Bethel. Look in verse 9 with me. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aran and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, um, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and company. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. The land, I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him. Bethel. When Jacob finally returns wholeheartedly to God, God appears to him in the same place that he spoke with him 30 years earlier. The first time he spoke to Jacob in Bethel, it was in a dream. This time, God comes to him in um, some form. He visibly comes to him. Um, and he confirms that Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. If you remember the wrestling match, he first told Jacob that back at the wrestling match. But it hasn't been mentioned for the whole 10 years that Jacob has been in Shechem, um, God also affirms all the other promises that he's made to Abraham and Isaac. And he adds a few more in here because for the very first time, he says to um, Jacob, from you, kings will come from your family. He's going to multiply his descendants. He's going to possess the land. He's going to have blessings beyond belief. 
And just as he did three decades earlier, Jacob here sets up a pillar to the Lord. The first time he poured oil on it to consecrate it. This time he pours out a drink offering as a sacrifice on the pillar along with oil. And Jacob has a naming ceremony here as well. He reconfirms that the name of the place is Bethel, the house of God, because Jacob has finally returned to God's house after all these years of wandering. Now, the remainder of chapter 35 that we don't have time to talk about today, but let me tell you, it's a transition. The end of chapter 35 is a transition because you're going to see next week, we're going to transition to the story of Jacob's son, Joseph. And it's going to be a great uh, few weeks, so you want to going to want to be here to talk about Joseph. But the important things we learn during this transition is that Rachel finally has that second son, doesn't she? The son that she asked for when Joseph was born. She has that second son. His name is Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth before they reach Bethlehem. Um, and Jacob buries her in what's called Rachel's tomb. Benjamin is Jacob's 12th son, and that's important because they're going to be 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12's, uh, 12 sons have completed uh, Israel's future right here. And we also see, as we transition the end of this chapter, more family dysfunction. It is the family dysfunction is the gift that keeps on giving. It just goes on and on and on in our families, doesn't it? Because we see Reuben trying to uh, steal the leadership of the family away from Jacob by sleeping with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. And finally, at the end of this chapter, in verses 27 through 29, we see Isaac's death. Jacob has finally made it all the way back to his father's house. Uh, Isaac's 180 years old when he dies. Now, I think chapter 35 should be a huge encouragement to all of us, even though we discover that Jacob has spent 10 years procrastinating before God. And I think it's an encouragement because it shows when our hearts wander, God pursues us. God knows where we are. We can never wander off and become lost where God says, oh man, I looked up one day and I didn't have any idea where they were. God looks up and he knows exactly where we've wandered off to and he comes to get us and that's what he does here for Jacob. He has patiently waited for Jacob for 10 years um, and God pursues him so that his plan can be complete. You know, God sees the trouble Jacob's family is having in Shechem trouble created by Jacob, and he comes to get him. He prods Jacob to obedience by sending him to Bethel and even protects him along the way. When our hearts wander and we are unfaithful to God to finish the journey, our God is always faithful to finish his work in us. And that's the great news of Jacob's story. Look at Philippians 1.6 on your verse sheet. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Psalm 138.8 says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. We are the work of God's hand. And he never ever forsakes us, not even when we wander away from him. Now, as soon as Jacob 
returns to God once more and becomes dependent on him and submits to his prodding, God shows up in a big way here, doesn't he? When our hearts are fully, wholly committed to God, as Jacob's finally is in Bethel, we have incredible fellowship with God, just like Jacob does here. He showed up in person. He was so excited to have Jacob back. And we have God's blessings when we're fully committed to God. You know, Jacob and his family have paid a huge price here for him being out there wandering around in the high weeds of life. But the good news from us is it teaches us some great lessons about how we can return wholly committed to God when we've been out there wandering around in those high weeds. We can, return, we can learn from Jacob that in order to return fully to God, we've got to face our fears. Now, we saw that Jacob's fear of uh, returning to Cana and back to Bethel had to do first with Laban facing him and then with Esau uh, coming to greet him. You know, our fears, um, when we're out wandering around and not fully committed to God, may be about family as well. There may be a family situation we don't want to face either. And God may be asking us to return to him and do that. Um, it may be our refusal to forgive that has keeps us out there wandering around, uh, separated from God. It may be obedience that we fear. And I hear this all the time. We're fearful. We can't return wholly to God and be committed to him because we're fearful of obedience. What if he asks me to do something I don't want to do? What if he asks me to leave that relationship that's inappropriate? What if he asks me to give that up? What if he asks me to stay in a marriage that's hard? What if he asks me to deal with a child that's difficult? Um, Fear of obedience is always going to leave our heart wondering, but what Jacob discovered is that God's trustworthy in every single situation. He could have trusted him with Esau. He could have trusted him to protect Rachel and uh, Joseph. He could have trusted him if they put away their idols. Now, the next thing that Jacob teaches us about returning wholeheartedly to God is that we do have to put away those idols, bury them, leave them behind. And, you know, we don't have statues for the most part, I don't think, that we carry around with us or idols that we put in our ears. But we still have idols, don't we, ladies? We have our material goods that are so important in our lives. We have relationships that are more important than God. We sometimes put our children our husbands, our families, ahead of our relationship with God. As women, we have the temptation to idolize youth, to idolize beauty, to idolize a number on a scale or social status. Whatever it is, we re if we refuse to bury it, it will keep our hearts wandering until dysfunction and harm destroys our families, just like it destroyed Jacob's families. When prodded by God, after all those years, Jacob finally gathered those idols up and buried them. God's going to prod us too. He may be prodding you today to put something out of your life that's an idol. Listen to him. Listen to him. And finally, Jacob teaches us that stopping short of our commitments to God is going to keep our hearts wandering out there as well. You know, we may read our Bibles every day and sit right here in this church every Sunday morning. But if we stop short of applying all that to our lives, we're going to keep wondering. 
We're going to keep wandering out there. We may know that living the way the world lives, being in, immersed in the world's culture, may be bad for us, may be bad for our relationship with God, but if we stop short of taking our, ourselves out of that culture, we're going to keep wandering. When Jacob stopped short of returning holy to God, he suffered and his family suffered. When he made it all the way to Bethel, returning wholeheartedly to God, he saw God and he was blessed by God. Look at James 4.8 on your verse sheet. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jacob's great lesson to us is don't stop short. God is waiting. Pray with me. Father, you're a gracious and a good God and you pursue us when we are running away from you and you bring us back and you fellowship with us and you bless us. Father, I pray that we would be women who are wholly committed to you, that put away our idols, that face our fears, that stop, never stop short of obedience to you. Father, I thank you for these women and their love for you and the gift of your word that you've given to all of us. And I just ask your hand of favor on us as we leave this morning. And I pray this in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.